Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. It's the best podcast in creation, but you don't have to take my word for it. In modern American culture, often we default to believing what we see and questioning what we hear. Mm. And I think that default mentality does not serve us well. In the age of Photoshop, in the age of video editing, that does not serve us well. A good comic can be a great way of examining that dynamic closely. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast, Facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast, and Twitter at the GBB Podcast, and wherever you get podcasts from uh, on your apps, on the apps, I'm so old, on the apps, on the YouTubes, is that where you get it? Um, <laughs> and we're only slightly coming up on being as popular as S-Town. Have you heard of S-Town, Jamie? S-Town? It's the new big I, I, podcast. Not. Does, that, does that show my age? Darn it. No, I don't know. Who, who, so who's S-Town? Okay, so, so S-Town is a new podcast by the people from This American Life that made Serial. Oh, okay. And I haven't listened to it yet, but I heard them talking about it on the radio, and apparently they just set some record for the most downloaded show ever. Yeah, 16 yeah. million downloads, I think they've had. Well, Serial so was, was very popular, so I know a lot of people were um, sort of... <laughs> begging for more in that vein or from those same people exactly so, um yeah we're getting there we're getting there 16 million, <laughs> we have a fraction of 16 million <laughs> i think if we had 16 we fraction million, of 16 yeah i think if we if we had it we probably would have gotten that uh star wars celebrations invite <clears throat> but oh, yeah, whatever, yeah. you know we're not we're not bitter about that <laughs> i'm not <laughs> no, i'm not at no, all we're good we're good we're not even gonna talk about that okay so a week ago or however long ago it was, Jamie sends me a picture <laughs> and he says, we're fancy. We're getting fancy for the podcast today. And I was looking at it and I was like, where? Yeah, I think, where I, I, think I, I sent you a picture of where I was set up and I said something like fanciest podcast episode yeah. ever or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was looking at the picture and I was like, is he in the White House? Is he interviewing <laughs> Trump? Because I, I, like, well, Jamie lives in Washington and I could clearly tell it was an old government building of some kind. I didn't know what it was, but... And then he goes, Library of Congress. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's a normal day, you know, just doing podcasts. Yeah, everybody podcasts. just goes to the Library of Congress to record their podcasts. <laughs> so what's the story on that? Why were you there for the podcast? All right, so today's episode, if you've downloaded it, you know, I talked to Jean Luen Yang. Um, Jean is a um, graphic novelist and author who has been around for a while and has... has um, one of the most celebrated graphic novelists working today, quite honestly. Um, and he's also currently the national ambassador for young people's literature. And if you've listened to our show, you know, we also talked to Kate DiCamillo, who was the previous national ambassador. So what they do is they, they have a two year term 
it's the Library of Congress National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. Um, so they, I don't know quite honestly how they make their determination about who is going, who it will be. But after um, Katie Camillo's term was up, they named Gene Yang as the next ambassador. So he's in his second year now. Um, and what happens is during that tenure, each national ambassador sort of carves out their own niche. They do their own thing um, to encourage reading and um, among children, really. Um, and, you know, the proliferation of those arts and to get it into the get it more into the public sphere. So what Gene has done is something called Reading Without Walls. It's the Reading Without Walls Challenge. Um, and we'll talk about it. So I'm not going to explain it all right now. But he's got three parts to this challenge. And it's all about getting kids to sort of break out of their comfort zone and read books that they might not normally read. This event was uh, he was at the National uh, the Library of Congress and he was in conversation with Carla Hayden, who is the librarian of Congress right now. Um, and it was a it was a private event. It wasn't open to the public. Um, they had invited, I think, three different schools, uh, local to D.C. area schools. So three grades were in there. So the room was kind of full of kids. Um, and Gene and Carla Hayden had this quest like back and forth. They had a conversation about reading and books and the reading without walls challenge and all of that. Um, and then they had some Q and a time with the kids and it was really cool. And so I, um, I know Gene, I've, I've met, I've met him before. I've talked to him before. I know his publisher is first, second books. I do a lot of work with them promoting their books. Their books are phenomenal. They're, they, I love, I, they're one of my favorite publishers. Um, and so they invited me to go and, and cover the event. And then, um, I talked myself into saying, you know, like, can I sit down with Gene afterwards and we'll just do a podcast because he's been on one, he's been on the list as a potential guest for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is afterwards, after the event, um, we did, we sat down, we went to a, you know, a private room and we just sat down and that's where I set the, uh, I sent the picture from that, from where I was set up to, for that interview. Right. So when you listen to it, you it, it sounds a little bit echoey because this is a huge government building with very tall ceilings and not great sound insulation or anything. So mm-hmm. it sounds a little echoey, uh, and that's just because we're in a big room, um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was the middle of the day. So, you know, we were in a room that was just off of a main public area. So, you know, I'm sure if you listen closely, you'll be able to hear, you know, crowd noise and things like that. So, um, but yes, we, we, I sat down with him at the Library of Congress and we had a, a fantastic conversation. And so that's, so that's where that came from. You asked what the story was. That was the, my <laughs> long winded way of, of telling you what that was. Well, no, that's great because you also introduced our guest today so it all worked out (laughs) (laughs) i had two birds with one stone (laughs) and also i guess it's just another first for our podcast you know we're in the library of congress next stop the white house but maybe in four years three years fingers crossed i will tell you it was it was another first too because we've um you know we we joke about you know going to conference uh, conventions and doing live podcasts and stuff. This was, I I've done on the spot interviews with, um, guests before at conventions and things, you know, but this was the first time I actually, you know, brought the mic and set up the computer mm-hmm. and had a, you know, we sat down at a table and we did a live recording like that rather than me just holding like a handheld mic and, you know, doing it like sort of journalist style. This was right. Um, this was a first for me and I was a little bit nervous because I wasn't sure how it was going to work out, but I think it worked out really well. 
Look at you being all professional. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're going to go play this interview for you right now. Hope you enjoy. So you are in the middle of your tenure as the National Ambassador, and I was just wondering if you could give a few minutes, quick overview of what that entails. Sure, sure. So the National Ambassador Program was started in 2008, relatively new program. Every ambassador has a two-year term, and the whole point of the position is to get both more kids reading and kids reading more. Uh, because it's such a new program, there's a lot of leeway on, mm-hmm. on how you can do things. Uh, every year, I'm only required to do four different events. Uh, beyond that, I can just kind of yeah. do what you, I want. So I do, I do, do, do more. more I, do more than, <laughs> I do more than four events. Uh, I also do a, uh, like a video podcast series that began as monthly, but I got really busy and now it's not monthly anymore, but I'm still doing it. It's hard it. to keep up with, I understand. It is. <laughs> you know, you know. You feel my pain <laughs> I on do, that I one. I do, I feel it. <laughs> and then I do a blog that started off monthly as well that's sort of fallen behind, but I'm, that I'm still working on. Uh, and um, and then there's this program, the the Reading Without Walls Challenge, that we're working on now. Right. The publisher that I work with, Macmillan, has really gotten behind it. So um, we've made April Reading Without Walls month. We're encouraging librarians and bookstore owners and teachers to adopt this with their kids. Macmillan is going to make this an annual event. So every April from now on, oh, we'll wow. be doing. Reading without wall stuff. Okay, that's yeah. great. Even, even after, even, even after, after you the pass, ambassadorship is over, pass yeah. the medal on. Yeah, <laughs> somebody gets right. a new medal. I that's should right. say. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that for a few minutes. Just for people who maybe don't know what it is, explain what that is, because I know there are three different pillars. I guess uh-huh. of the challenge. So just quickly explain what that is. Uh, every ambassador chooses a platform, something that they want to focus on. So I chose. Reading Without Walls, by which I mean I want kids to explore their world through books. I want them to read books that they normally wouldn't read for fun. Specifically, I want them to do one of three things. Number one, I want them to read books about characters that don't normally that don't look like them or, or live like them. Two, I want them to read books about topics that they wouldn't normally read about, topics that they might not know anything about. And three is I want them to read books in formats that they don't usually read for fun. So this can be either chapter books or graphic novels, audiobooks, books in yeah. verse. How, how did you come to those three different challenges, like those three aspects? We, we, came, we came together as, uh, for a meeting before my ambassadorship started, like in October or November of 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it came out of that meeting. Okay. You know, I, I, I think some of it is uh, I, I do have a value for diversity. But as a cartoonist, as somebody who works primarily in graphic novels, I think I want to see diversity expressed in every way possible. Not, not just about cultural diversity or diversity of, of a way of life, but also diversity in terms of, of format. And, yeah. and then the topic part came in uh, because at the time I was also working on this basketball book, which topic-wise is very outside of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. When you look at those three different challenges, you know, reading outside your comfort zone, something you may not have picked up, and format as well, why do you think that that's so important for young readers to, 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 to just not only glom onto that, but see that as normal? Be like, well, I, you know, I maybe don't live this experience, but there's nothing wrong with reading about it. Yeah, yeah. For the, for the character part, yeah. um, I think reading about characters who are different from you is one of the most efficient ways that we have 
to actually see out of somebody else's eyes, to, to really get to know somebody else's world perspective. Yeah. Uh, and, and that in turn builds empathy. They've done all these studies about how reading fiction actually makes you a more empathetic person. Yeah. I, I think that diversity, we talk about celebrating diversity a lot, but really I don't think that diversity is an option anymore in the modern world. If you, if you look at how every industry works, you are constantly going to be interacting with people who are different from you, right? Mm-hmm. Just to get anything done, mm-hmm. you gotta you got to do it. Right. And you can either go in um, and uh, you, can, you can go in with empathy and let, let things move smoothly, or there can be a lot of friction. So I, I think uh, that that piece, the character piece, is about building empathy so that our world can function a little bit better. Yeah. The topic piece, when you learn about topics that you didn't know anything about, you are exercising your own ability to make yourself better. You are exercising your own ability to educate yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really empowering. Mm-hmm. When you figure out that you can learn about anything you want through a book, it's very, very empowering. Sure. Then for the format thing, I think a lot of kids, when they think about books, they only think about one particular kind of book. Uh, and that, in turn, leads them to think that there's only one particular way of expressing yourself right. in a book. Right. When you read a variety of formats, you realize, well, even if I can't find my voice in this one avenue, mm-hmm. there are like a bunch of different avenues that I can explore. Yeah. I think that can be very empowering as yeah, well. Absolutely. I mean, following you online, social media, the blog, Twitter, you are all over the place. I mean, you've been traveling a lot for the National Ambassadorship, for your new books, for Reading Without Walls. Um, I have to imagine, I have to hope that the response to this challenge has been good. Um, but have you uh, have you gotten any resistance? Has there been anybody else sort of like questioning, like what, well, why, like why do we need kids to read about other people? I uh, I had uh, the response has been great. It's been yeah. crazy. You know, I, I get pictures from librarians uh, and bookstore owners of these displays that they put up to issue the challenge to the kids that, mm-hmm. that are in their lives. And it's been wonderful to see. Yeah. You know, I, I see these walls with certificates of completion all over. I was just in Boston. I visited a public library where um, they had a, a wall in the lower level that was just covered with certificates of completion. Yeah. It was awesome right. to see. It was wonderful to see. Overall, it's people have been really supportive. Yeah. I, I think we've been a little taken aback by how creative people are. In, in issuing this this challenge to their kids, yeah. um, I have gotten a little bit of resistance. For one piece, one piece I got, um, which I actually think is very valid, is uh, somebody wrote me an email saying that the Reading Without Walls challenge assumes that you have a comfort zone within reading, hmm. so it doesn't really address non-readers. Interesting. Which I think is true. Yeah. I think it's true, and I think that that is a weakness of this. This program, yeah. um, I think that'll be something. Maybe the the next ambassador can, uh, can address. <laughs> could, yeah, could, could, yeah. I think. I mean, I mean, one one of my, especially with that first piece of the challenge, one of my um, hopes is that uh, it can be a tool for driving up demand for stories about diverse characters. Yeah, you know, because yeah. that, that's a constant conversation is, sure. uh, in in both comics and in traditional books is. Uh, we can talk about diversity all we want, but if the demand isn't there, if the numbers aren't there, 
Mm -hmm. It's just not going to work. Yeah. Quick anecdote. I was uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was in the library with my kids and I overheard a mom talking to her son as they came in and she said, okay, you're allowed to get three books and I don't want to see any comic books in that pile. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking to myself, you're, you're doing it all wrong. Like that's, that's not how you get your kids excited about reading. So I'm wondering in your, you know, your travels and your discussions with parents and teachers and librarians, whether you still hear that, you know, comic books or graphic novels aren't, isn't real reading argument. It's, it's pretty rare for me now. And it could be just because I'm a graphic novelist, right? Yeah. They're not going to come up and say, say that to, to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it is very, it, it seems to be growing more and more rare. When I, yeah. when I started in comics in the late 90s, people would say it to me, even yeah. if they knew yeah. that I was a graphic novelist. I mean, novelist. how do you respond to that? Like, what do you, what do you say to a parent who is just, who's stuck in his or her ways and says, you know, reading a comic, that's not real reading? Yeah, number one is, uh, I want to make it very clear to that. I do not want to replace prose reading, yeah. prose novels with graphic novels. I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's about uh, making a more diverse marketplace. Right. It's about making, giving more diverse choices yeah. to readers, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also think that uh, a reader who only reads graphic novels is missing out on uh, an entire world of amazing stories. There sure. are certain stories that are just best told without pictures. Yeah. Uh, and, and you lose out on all those stories if you only read graphic novels. Yeah. So I, 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 I try to make that very clear. I do think that sometimes the fear is rooted in this idea that we're just going to lose prose altogether. Yeah. You know? I think it's also rooted in the idea that, you know, the, I don't want to say ignorance, but, you know, people think of graphic novels or comics and they think of the superhero comics. Yes. You know, which are not all incredibly well written. Some of no. them do target different, very different audiences. So parents who might not be familiar with what's available they'll see something you know be like oh spider yeah. and they'll remember archie from when they were a kid or they'll remember spider and the x-men from when they were a kid and and not realize what vast differences there are now what's available now yeah. in terms of the graphic medium yeah and how much genre diversity there exactly is right, now, right? Exactly. Uh, i also think that you know back back in the day uh scott mccloud talks about the different kinds of relationships that the words and the pictures can have within mm -hmm. a comic uh and and he talks about how in a lot of old school comics, it was what he calls a, a, a duo-specific relationship where both the words and the pictures are conveying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that was, well, if you're not smart enough to get the words, right. the pictures will reinforce. You. But if you, if you look at modern comics, even kids' comics, they're not doing that. The yeah. relationship between the words and the, and the, um, and the pictures are, is often very, very sophisticated. Yeah. You know, the narrative responsibility gets passed back and forth between the two. Sometimes they even contradict each other. Yeah. And especially when they contradict each other, I, I think it asks the reader to, to think more deeply about the, con about the information that's being conveyed. In modern American culture, often we default to believing what we see and questioning what we hear. Hmm. And I think that default mentality does not serve us well. In yeah. the age of Photoshop, in the age of video editing, that does not serve us well. Right. A good comic can be a great way of examining that dynamic closely. That's interesting. I've never heard it put that way, but it's absolutely right. Yeah. Questioning what you see through reading comics. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I talked to LeVar Burton for the show. And oh, awesome. Yeah, it was, How was that? Was that cool? Was, it was really awesome. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> I bet. It was one of the highlights. I bet. I bet. Um, but it was, he was really excited about taking Reading Rainbow into the digital sphere. You know, yeah. They have a digital library where kids can you know, read online for their e-books and, and whatnot. Um, but 
I'm not knocking that approach and I think is whatever we can do to get kids reading, we should be doing. But here we are sitting in the Library of Congress, one of the most beautiful libraries in the world. And I'm wondering what can we do to get more families into libraries? Yeah, yeah. That, that's a, a million-dollar question, right? That's a big question. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think libraries are so important because reading, reading can be an individual activity, yeah. but reading also needs to be a communal activity. You have to read in community. I think often when it's just you and the text, you miss a lot of that text, yeah. right? You miss a lot of the power of the text if it's just your yeah. brain. Your brain is the only brain that, that yeah. is interacting with it. Uh, libraries are a physical manifestation of reading in community. And, 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 and that's why, I think that's why they're a critical part of our society. Uh, I can tell you the creative things that I've seen libraries do to, to bring people in. I, I've seen a lot of amazing summer programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen programs where they will tie media that the kids are watching with media that they can read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen uh, programs where they will uh, empower readers to become creators, readers to become writers, readers to become artists, you know, through contests and, and, and that sort of thing. And I think all of that together yeah. uh, is, is really important. I know within comics, within the sphere of comics, maybe a decade ago, there was this real fear that digital comics were going to replace print. Yeah. Uh, Mark Wade, a prominent comic book writer, did this whole piece about it, how mm. we should just brace ourselves for the death of print Mm -hmm. but then now we have a a decade of experience we have a decade of data and Mm -hmm. what we found is that is not the case yeah right we found that digital media actually supports print that people will start reading a series digitally and then if they like it they'll actually jump on print so for a long time digital sales were rising but uh print sales were rising right along with it. It was not one right, pie, right? right? right. It, was, it was actually growing the pie. And now, what's even more interesting is that digital sales have plateaued and print sales continue, continue to, to rise. To rise. Yeah. Uh, a similar dynamic is happening. Uh, I think atoms are just making a comeback. That's what I think, right? A similar thing is happening in books in general. Yeah. And even in like vinyl, yeah, kids these days are actually buying, buying vinyl, vinyl now, right? But it's crazy. So, so you you watch a you watch a YouTube video of. I don't know, some band in the 80s, yeah. you find that you like it, and then you want to go out and you buy the, the, vinyl. the vinyl for it. It's, yeah. it's a nutty it is, thing. It is. Yeah. Um, but do you see, I mean, is, is reading digitally ebooks, and I'm not just talking comics, but I'm talking like for kids mm-hmm. too, if you know, they're going to pick up a chapter book or a you know, young adult book, and they, is that a good substitute? Is, I mean, for, especially for younger readers, when they're encountering the words and the stories digitally. Is that a good substitute, or should we still be pushing them toward print as, or, you know, as soon as possible? Uh, I, they, they, they have done these studies that have found that reading, on, reading digitally and reading on print is, is different, yeah. that often you retain a little bit better when you're digitally. reading on, oh, on when print. You're reading on print. Okay. Yeah, when yeah. you're reading print, you retain a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I personally read both. My kids also read both digitally and, and print. Mm-hmm. I think they navigate between the two a little bit more easily yeah. than I do. Yeah. Uh, for me, I have found that there are certain kinds of books that require a lot of concentration for me that I cannot read digitally. Okay. There's something about reading on the same device that I used to check email, yeah. you know, that I, that I used to watch. Yes, yeah. yes, there's, there's something about that. There's something about the, uh, a habit that you build in yourself yeah. that, that uh, gets in the way of concentration when you really need it. Yeah. And, and they've, like, there's a book about this that really influenced my, my thinking about it called uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport. So I think there's a there's definitely a challenge there. Yeah. I think there's definitely a challenge about how we manage digital media 
in a way that does not destroy our ability to concentrate uh, and concentrate on things that require deep concentration, like sure, reading. Sure. Uh, I I don't know if like I I don't I don't know if I would say that we have to push kids towards print, mm-hmm. but I do think that both options need to be available, and kids need to understand that there is a difference. There is a difference. Yeah. 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 Um, Kind of going back to the reading without walls, you know, the the idea is to read something outside of your comfort zone, or to read something that's not in your lived experience. Um, I've talked to a lot of graphic novelists, and they especially, you know, a lot of people early in their careers, they'll start writing or doing books that are autobiographical to a certain extent, or if they're not directly from their own life, it's it's something that would have happened in their life. It's not yes. out of the realm of possibility. Um, and that makes sense because you're writing what you know, which is that old, you yeah. know, debated whether it's good or not advice. Um, but as a creator and as a storyteller, at what point point do you tell yourself that, like it's okay to, to 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 write what I maybe don't know? It's okay to go outside of that comfort zone. You know, you're telling kids to read what they might not know. When do you tell yourself that it's okay to write what you might not know? I think you, I think if you are writing purely from all of my stories are rooted in my life in some way, at least in some sort of emotional reality, right? Right. But if you try to draw, if the only place you research is your own life, you're going to run out of stuff sure. pretty quick, mm-hmm. you know. And and uh, and I think just that fact that you run out mm-hmm. will push you outside of your yeah. your comfort zones. Yeah. Uh, research has become a bigger and bigger piece of my uh, my process. Yeah. It used to be that my research was just thinking through my own memories, and now I do a lot of reading for for every book that I write. So this is, I mean, it's become kind of a sensitive issue lately, and I mean, like writers who want to write vastly different from their own experience. They want to include these diverse voices and perspectives and points of view in their stories, Mm and um, you know, maybe maybe somebody who is straight might want to write an LGBT Mm -hmm. character, Mm -hmm. or somebody who is, you know, African-American wants to write about an Asian-American character, and their their own life, they can't draw from their own life. What advice do you give to writers who want to do that? Like, how do you do that sensitively and smartly so you're, you're not offending, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a big it's question. A tricky, it's that's a, a big question. There's out. there's a there's a big uh, own voices discussion that's happening on, yeah. online right now. Yeah. And and I totally get where that's coming from. I think it's two different questions. Mm-hmm. I think there is a question for writers and there's a question for uh, publishers. So I would never tell a writer that they can't do that, mm-hmm. right? That they can't write outside of their own experiences, because I think in part stepping out of your own skin is a part of a writer's job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, when you look at the marketplace, and for a specific demographic, when you realize that 80% of the books that are out there are by people who are outside of that demographic or outsiders to that experience, I think it's a problem. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's a question for publishers, whether or not they're ignoring, and other gatekeepers, not just publishers, all right. gatekeepers, right. whether or not they're ignoring voices that ought to the be The authentic voices. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and why? Yeah. Yeah. Why are they ignoring those voices? Yeah. I think those are very important questions. Now, for somebody who is writing outside of your own experience, uh, you know, I've 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 done this. I did this in Secret Coders. Um, uh, in Secret Coders, my t- two of my main characters, one is biracial, and the other one is African American. Neither of which is is my own experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one is realize that um, there is. Uh, a core humanity that we all share, despite our um, our the, the vast differences in our experiences, 
and your story ought to be rooted in some way in that core humanity. And then on top of that, I think you have to approach other people's experiences with a humility and a willingness to do your homework. Right. Homework includes not just reading, but also talking to folks who are insiders. Uh, and the humility requires you to realize that you may get some things wrong, you know, yeah. and, and being willing to, to deal with that. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, because like you said, it is a, becoming a much bigger discussion now. And I think mm-hmm. the discussion in terms of getting those voices out there does need to start at the top. It needs to start with the publishers. But I know that there are a lot of writers who who want to do better by their characters and their readers and they want to include these other voices but they're just not exactly sure how and it's, yeah. it's, it's a very it's a difficult it's a difficult road to travel and it's yeah. it's it's not easy because no matter what you decide to do somebody is probably going to find fault with how you chose to do yeah. it yeah yeah so, yeah yeah I don't think that should stop you from trying though I think no. you grow as a person yeah. when you try even if you make mistakes I think yeah. you grow as a person yeah I'm going to talk about making mistakes for a couple of minutes yeah. um, so 2006 unless I did my homework wrong, is when American Born Chinese uh-huh. came out. And that was not your first book, but it was relatively early in your career. Um, and it went on to win oh, not every major award, but it, and, you know, it was it went, the first graphic novel to be nominated for the National Book Award. It won yeah. the Eisner. And so from an outsider looking at that, you know, you'd be like, wow, you know, you're the blush of like instant success, instant success out of, straight out of the gate. But I know that that's never the case. Um, And so I was wondering how long the road was for you up until that point. Like, how much rejection did you have to go through? Uh, I began taking comics seriously in 96, right after I graduated from college. That's when I started working on a comic. Uh, I was working as a programmer at the time. That's how I was feeding myself. And that's how I got plugged into the Bay Area comic scene. I went to uh, different comic book conventions met other cartoonists who were around my age who were starting off. We started mm-hmm. hanging out together. I never went to art school. Hanging out with those those cartoonists was sort of like my art school. Okay. You know, uh, I self-published my first comic book in 97 with the Zurich Foundation grant, okay. which is funded by Turtles Money, Ninja mm-hmm. Turtles Money. Uh, and then uh, and then I, I, I made comics ever since. So by the time American Born Chinese came out, I've been making comics for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. I submitted to a bunch of different publishers. I got rejected by a bunch of them. We also, we also got to work with some publishers. You know, uh, a, a friend of mine, Derek Kirk Kim, and I, we did a miniseries called Duncan's Kingdom that was put out by Image Comics. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I worked with uh, SLG Publishing for a number of years, mm-hmm. put out a, a few graphic novels with them. Yeah. So through, the, through the, that time when you might have been getting the rejections, what kept you going? Like, what... what, what kept you going in, in the face of the odds that you might have been seeing piling up? Number one is I never went into comics thinking I could make a full-time career at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started in the mid to late 90s. Mm-hmm. At that time, the comic book industry was not going well. Mm-hmm. Marvel Comics had just declared bankruptcy. Some people were expecting it to just blink out of existence. And if it did, it would have taken uh, most of the comic book stores in America with it the entire industry would have collapsed. So I remember going to conventions and listening to publishers and artists and writers talk about how we were going to see the death of the American comic book. I remember talking to Art Adams, one of my favorite comic book artists from when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. how he, at the time, I don't think it's true anymore, but at the time, he was more invested in working for the video game magazine industry than he was the comic book industry because it was just so hard to make a living, Mm -hmm. even for him Mm -hmm. in in comics. So I went in thinking, this is never going to be a full-time thing for me. I'm never even going to make money at comics. Some people play 
golf is their hobby, I'm going to make comics yeah. as my hobby. Okay. Uh, so I didn't like like the turnaround between then and now has been stunning. The yeah. fact that everybody knows what a graphic novel is is really crazy. Right. The fact that graphic novels are being considered for major awards, I think, is really crazy. The fact that you know we're sitting here in the Library of Congress to, yeah. and I'm a graphic novelist is just weird. <laughs> There's just yeah. lots of weird things, right? Did you ever? Had. Did you ever even dream? Like even okay, so like you're doing your own books, you're telling your stories, and you're like, okay, I can just do this as a hobby. I could do this as my own thing. And then American Born Chinese comes out, and you sort of make it. You hit it. You you hit the big time. It wins awards. People start to know your name on a, on a much wider scale, and, and doors are becoming open to you. But did you ever really think that? Like, yeah, someday I'm going to be sitting in the Library of Congress with that medal around my neck, no. and everybody's going to be looking no. to me as an ambassador. No, it's crazy. I think the, <laughs> the the yeah, it's just been it's been so crazy. The last the last ten years have been nuts. Yeah, beyond anything I could have imagined. Yeah, yeah. it's something you, you could could you have written it? No, no, I don't. I, yeah, I I mean I, at the time comics were such a separate market. Yeah, right. Yeah, like as a cartoonist, you would dream about the Eisner. You wouldn't dream about anything outside of. The comic book industry. You wouldn't think about the National Book Award. You would not think about any of that. Yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was outside the realm of what you did. Yes. Yeah. It felt like a totally different world back then. Yeah. Now it's all all coming together. It is. Um, instead of asking you for advice that you might have for for young readers um, who want to write, um, seems like a weird intro. But why are we still seeing? You know, we, we, we talk about we talked a little bit about the the frustration you know of parents who might not see comics as real reading. But why are we still seeing this division with publishers and bookstores of boy book and girl book? Yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, uh, this is something that I talk talk to uh, my my uh, my friends who are parents about uh, mm -hmm. is that it does seem like. Like especially if you've raised boys and girls, you know it does seem like there are. Like I, I think, I think the mistake. I think it's a mistake to think of gender as a binary, mm -hmm. but there also is a polarity there, right? There's a there is definitely a polarity there, and um, and and you can't say that every girl is girly. You can't say that every boy is boyish, mm -hmm. but the, and there's a continuum there. And right. I think often when you when you talk about boy and girl, you ignore all the space in the middle. Yeah. You ignore all that's like a huge swath of humanity that are, you're just pretending is not there. Right. Right? And that's that's a that's a big problem. But at the same time, there are people who um, who maybe more closely fit with traditional norms that are assigned mm -hmm. to to each gender. So so the, the, I, I think. Um, yeah, I think the mistake of talking about boys as boy books and girl books is that you ignore you ignore the gigantic middle, which is maybe even the majority of people, yeah. right, are, are in the middle. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but what I wonder is if there's a way of talking about it where you acknowledge the entire spectrum. If yeah. you, there's there's a way of talking about it. So I I think um, I think that um, like with with my in my own house in my own house, I think that. Um, like I have, I have some kids. You know, I have, we have four kids. So uh, I, I think that there are some kids. That, I think each kid has a natural place that they gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. And part of my job as a parent is to get them to also consider things that are outside of their comfort zone. It's right. fine. It's fine right. that they have a comfort zone. Right. But every now and then, just Let's try try something wall. new. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so. Uh, I, 
I wonder if there's a way of talking about it, uh, boy books and girl books, that. Um, yeah, you know what? Now that I now that I now that I'm actually voicing this, I, I think that I think that the the problem with talking about boy books and girl books is that it actually works against mm-hmm. getting kids outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, and, and so you can you can yeah you can talk about you can talk about oh I don't know maybe you can talk about a book with that is more likely uh, yeah I don't even know how you would say I, it I mean the way that they're currently marketing like if you have a book with a, like a the pink cover you know or a book with a bl- blue cover and like my daughter will reject that girly book like she'll look at them and she's like I have no interest I should, it, it could be a cool the best story in the world yeah but the way that it's marketed and the way that it's tried to be sold to her as you know girls interest or girls stories stories like she on that own she'll shut down yeah and she won't want to read it yeah so my my daughter's like one of them especially fits a little bit more on the with with you know like the girly yeah, like a, sure. yeah it's seen, seen as a little bit more girly um the the color pink is very different in our house so so our, when our oldest daughter was born we only bought her light blue and brown clothes okay and then when it got time for her to choose her own clothes she started going crazy pink and maybe that was a mistake on our part right <laughs> maybe we should have included a more diverse set of colors for her yeah. to choose from but it was because she was because we didn't want to yeah we didn't want her to 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 feel constrained yeah. within yeah um traditional gender norms so so, uh, so maybe that was a mistake but but the way color the way the co- pink color functions in our house is that it is almost like I don't know it was almost like a claim of authority like if something's pink the boy is not allowed to touch it you know yeah, what I mean yeah. so it almost acts like it's almost like that's mine it's like an electric it's pink toy. it's mine <laughs> yes it is mine you don't get to touch that it's obviously mine because it's exactly, pink right exactly. it's obviously for me yeah so I I don't know I think I think maybe maybe that again points to diversity there's so many ways in which um, kids interact with yeah. With that, with that polarity, right, yeah. uh, uh, and and uh, and and maybe l- labels um, prevent kids from exploring. Maybe maybe la- maybe th- maybe this is the way to say it. Maybe it's in as much as labels um, get us to, in as much as labels become walls, we should try to at least undermine them. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, and last question. If you weren't writing, what would you be doing? <laughs> I would be teaching. Yeah. I would be teaching. I actually, I actually really like. I mean, I really like being a teacher. That was not something that I was doing. Yeah. Just to pass the you time. You didn't run away from it. No, no, no. I didn't run away from it. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy teaching. So I, I would probably do that. Like, like, yeah. I for years I was a part-time teacher, part-time cartoonist. I was on awesome balance. Yeah. yeah. It does seem like it's good balance if you enjoy it. I know yes. Teaching is not cut out for everybody. Yeah. Or not everybody. Yeah, that's out true. For that's true. Gene, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. This was awesome. Fantastic interview today. You handled that very well. A plus. A plus. Just like Adam Bray tweeted a few weeks ago, A plus podcast. And then he included that. That's us. (laughs) So thank you, Adam Bray. We should come up with a a logo we could put on our tweets or something like Adam Bray approved. Yes, Adam. We'll get it, and we'll get him to autograph it and have like Absolutely. a cheesy photo, yeah. like finger gun photo. Absolutely, <laughs> I like it. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming back every single week. I hope you come back every single week. If you don't, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, really? No, seriously. <laughs> if you don't hit that subscribe button, if you don't 
comma, hit that subscribe button. <laughs> Not. <laughs> anyway. It's, it, well, that wasn't the beginning of a threat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wasn't threatening you. Um, <laughs> and you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and join the conversation there. We love to hear from you and hear what you think about the episodes. And we're on Twitter and Facebook at the GBB podcast. And I am Justin at 140 Justin C. And I am Jamie at The Roarbots. And we will see you next time right here on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.